Hello, and welcome to Social Design Insights, the weekly podcast that brings you the leading voices of the social design movement from the fields of architecture, engineering, planning, and art. I'm your co-host, Eric Kessel, and I'm here as always with my co-host, Emiliano Gandolfi. Hello to everybody. We're here today to introduce the last episode uh, on the question, what can design do to promote peace? So, Eric, I don't think we really solved uh, the world's conflicts with this uh, series, but certainly, yeah, I I certainly think we have a better hunch on, on what architecture can do actually to address some of these issues. I think we do. And it's been an inspirational month to look at DAR and Hester Street and now Foundation for Achieving Seamless Territory and the methods that they use to tackle these really intractable conflicts. And I always have been a great fan of the work of Malkit Shoshan, uh, who is the founder of uh, FAST, the Foundation for Achieving Seamless Territory, and specifically in how in her work she's addressing the role of architectures in times of conflict, which is certainly a, a, a tremendously difficult task. And I think she kind of effortlessly, well, certainly not effortlessly, she makes it look effortless, blends together design and advocacy. So, you know, those are the two sort of big buckets of her work where, you know, she's working in camp, she's working on mapping, um, but that directly translates into advocacy at the level of the UN. Specifically because she's really trying to transcend uh, the disciplinary cage of architecture to find a way in which architecture can really become uh, impactful in such situations. So, yeah, making an atlas can be a way to expose inequality and injustice, but it can also be a way for policymakers to see how to change things. And specifically, I think it's interesting how she's bringing this also back to an experience with, with the community. So it's not only abstraction. By the way, I'm stealing the phrase disciplinary cage. That's great. Did you just think that up? Of course. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to use it in my teaching and my writing. Uh, I'll give you credit. Don't worry. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, I mean, she's got just kind of a brilliant feel for how these things work. And I really took a lot of inspiration away from this interview and a lot of sensitivity about, you know, how big some of these conflicts are and how deeply rooted in, in culture and how it does challenge a designer to break out of that disciplinary cage. Um, and start wearing different hats in order to achieve this this piece that we've been talking about all month. But let's listen what, to what Malkit has to say about this. Yeah, she explains it better than we do. Malkit, I wanted to start with a question about your origins, especially uh, looking at how you started the Foundation for Achieving a Seamless Territory. And in particular, because I think you, you really started with a, with an aim of looking at the role of architecture in the times of conflict. Since 2005, conflicts have not diminished, so you probably learned much about it. And I'm sure you can tell us really interesting things about this topic. I'm coming from a country where its entire landscape is produced uh, around this notion of conflict, or let's say the Israeli landscape has been produced in the past hundred years and every element of it is responsive to a certain situation on the ground, a reality that they want to counter. And uh, it has to do, of course, with the the origins of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And once you study architecture in such landscape, in such environment, then everything that you plan, you design, you are part of, you know, like the environment of art, your environment in the architectural discourse in school, etc., is is political and it's highly uh, contested. 
And coming from this type of landscape that every building has a different meaning or an additional meaning that in a way make it a participant in the conflict, in this political conflict, then you start becoming, you know, in my case, I start resisting it and I didn't want to participate in design anymore. I wanted to understand better these meanings, these landscapes, these buildings, what it means to produce architecture in such country. And uh, from that moment on, all this issue of conflict, of you know, uh, ideological plannings, etc., start emerging with questions and research, etc. So basically, Malkit, I mean, what you're saying is that in this context, any building uh, and any uh, architectural gesture would in fact uh, augment uh, the, the conflict and the kind of uh, aggression in, in a situation of tension between two, two populations. Yes. Definitely. And you can see it in master plans, you can see it in buildings, in structures, in ownership, in the way ownership is organized, etc. So, yeah, everything has multiple and multitude of meanings and roles in, in this type of, you know, landscape of, you can call it landscape of conflict. And so what are those uh, multitude of meanings? I mean, to Emiliano's previous point, in such a conflict, is all architecture inherently uh, aggressive and part of that conflict? Uh, many times, yes. I mean, I can tell you an example. At a certain moment during my studies, I started to read uh, master plans briefs because I wanted to understand what motivates a certain decision to, for instance, inhabit uh, an area. And I came across a master plan that was called uh, uh, the Seven Stars Master Plan, like a completely peculiar name, if you wouldn't have known. I mean, the name master plan wasn't attached to it. It was called just the Seven Stars. It was a book in our library, in, in the architecture faculty library. And uh, I started reading it. And the first paragraph in this master plan was basically describing a de demographic configuration in this region. We have this amount of Israelis and this amount of Arabs in this area, and we want to change the demographic balance. How do we do it? So we start designing cities. We want to have seven cities, so the stars indicated cities. And in order to make these city works, we need to create industrial areas. And in order to make the industrial area accessible, we need to build roads and so on and so forth and then you have an entire uh, landscape emerging that change the, the you know the design of a region and the access to resources of one community and another etc and it's all prescribed in this master plan so in that sense it goes from you know from the meta scale to the very uh, detailed uh, design of an exit from a road etc so uh, this is one example that uh, come to my mind at this moment. And then, with this perspective, you also focused on a specific community in Inhod, no? That so you it was in a way a theoretical understanding, but also you engaged directly uh, with uh, a, a smaller community to understand how this was affecting their life. Yeah. So that was. I mean, there are different issues that I try to explore and. Uh, I mean, as a student, when you stop to try to engage in this type of conversations, which are highly political, and you try to understand how you can actually bring this political discourse into the architecture school and make it, 
uh, useful in a way you communicate with your uh, peers, with your teachers, etc. You need to visualize everything. You need to bring all these conversation ideas, interviews, texts into the architectural domain. So I started using maps to translate much of my research into visuals because I wanted to, you know, to have a tool in which I can communicate this type of issues with in an architectural context. And the representation was a very important thing. So I started mapping different elements of the Israeli landscape and uh, Israeli territory and the conflict. And I came across an essay written by a lawyer and he was expert in land law and he described this entire uh, reality of the unrecognized Palestinian villages. And it was text. I couldn't find a map of it. I couldn't find any visual description of it. So I went to meet this lawyer and I started talking to him. He introduced me to an NGO that uh, the only thing that they did was to work with these unrecognized Palestinian villages and represent them in court and help them to, in a way, save their homes. So they protected them against housing demolition. Malkin, maybe you can explain to us what is a unrecognized Palestinian village? Uh, unrecognized Palestinian village is an entity, a village, uh, a neighborhood, uh, a locality that exists on the ground but is not represented on the formal maps of the country. So it's there, but formally the government doesn't recognize it and therefore it doesn't have access to civic rights, to resources, to uh, such as water, electricity. Kids cannot go to education simply because if the place is not recognized, it doesn't have address. And if it doesn't have address, the entire bureaucracy of the country works against you. If I were an architecture student studying in a library and I dug out uh, an atlas uh, of, of, of these territories, they literally would not appear on a map. No. Hmm. It becomes very tricky uh, in situations in which, for instance, the government issue a tender to design a new locality uh, somewhere in the country, and then it gets response from local architects, and then they propose an idea for locality based on uh, information that is not uh, in, like based on informal information. So then they can design an entire building, this, uh, an entire city on top of these villages without being aware that it exists. And this situation, I mean, it sounds very paradoxical and remote, but it happens. So since there is no evidence that this locality exists, then it can absorb these multiple plannings and ideas on top of it. And then it's, uh, in a way, if you produce a master plan on top of one of these unrecognized villages, it uh, become a tool for the government to um, uh, start a process of displacement. What is the process for formalizing these villages? I mean, maybe you could walk us through some of the projects, either at Inhad or um, in other locations. Since the establishment of Israel, I think only four villages out of uh, about 80 has been recognized. And mm. it has to do with a quite intense uh, advocacy campaign by uh, NGOs, human rights organizations, etc. Uh, it's, it's very complex and it always has some kind of you know, there is an interest why to uh, recognize one place and not recognize another. It can be a coincidence, it can be luck, but it's very rare to gain recognition. 
I've been working for about, I think, since 2001 till 2008 with one village, with Enkhud. When I started working there, the village was not recognized by the state. And in 2004, they received recognition from the state, means that they added onto the map the address become legalized and the houses could start applying for services, uh, to have access to services. And these services means having access to water and electricity, etc. But since 2004 until today, only one house has been legalized and only one house in the entire village has access to electricity and water and the entire village is taking, joining the electricity, this electricity line. So they have a lot of blackouts. So this entire idea of recognition is a bit tricky in this context. Even once once the village has been recognized, they still have a lot, uh, the process to be fully recognized and they have access to resources is still very uh, long and tiring. And Malkit, in, in this village, you did a, a, a sort of community planning process, right? In Enchud, what I tried to do, I mean, I met uh, the head of the village, the mayor of the village, when I was mapping, when I was trying to construct a map of the unrecognized uh, villages because no one knew where they are, and then he helped me make uh, the map for, uh, for, of these villages. While we were working on this map, I, we became friends and he told me the history of his, uh, his village and the story and it's quite a complex and a fascinating story uh, of uh, their displacement, but also, you know, the, the other side of the displacement is actually the emergence of Israel. So you have like these two villages, one next to the other and Hod and Hud, the Palestinian village and community that has been displaced and 100 meters away you have the appropriate original village by an Israeli community, by an Israeli artist, etc. So what I try to do with this project is to unfold these multiple narratives of like the emergence of Israel and the disappearance and displacement and you know reconfiguration of Palestine due to the 1948 war. I try during this entire process of trying to understand what had happened, the history, etc. I also try to see what I can do as an architect. So you have like the critical analysis research, uh, and then you have the more, let's say, pragmatic approach in which I try to engage with the local community toward creating an alternative master plan or a document with which the community could start negotiating with the local authorities their civic rights or uh, start negotiating right for space, for housing, etc. And that was also a very complex process in which I worked with the different families that live in the village, we did the survey, we did the entire process of not only making the master plan, but talking with the people, trying to create the basic survey, the basic data through which you can start, you know, have information in order to build up or that help you to help you to build up a master plan. 
And that was very complex and very exciting process. And it was, yeah, in somewhere on the intersection between research, design, and a lot of advocacy. We hope you've been enjoying this conversation with Malka Choshan of the Foundation for Achieving Seamless Territory. We've got to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be discussing the Atlas of Conflict in greater detail. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with more Social Design Insights. Welcome back to Social Design Insights. Eric and I are speaking with Malkit Shoshan, founder of the Foundation for the Achievement of Seamless Territory. In the first part of this interview, we have been looking at how Shoshan developed her approach experimenting Israel's spatial inequality. We will now be talking more about how FAST is exposing inequality, but also what can be the architect's role in building a more just alternative. And what has been the reception to that, both within Israel and internationally? We will link to on our website to Atlas of Conflict, um, a very seminal work about you know, the, the last 50 years, I believe, of relations between these two populations. But have you found that this mapping is a form of advocacy or are people reacting to it? Uh, definitely. I mean, the Atlas and Village are two different projects and in a way they are very complementary. So the Atlas work on a national scale, it's a research and representation project that shows the emergence of Israel, the disappearance of Palestine along different themes like you know, water forestation, landscaping, uh, localities and settlement typologies, etc. So with the Atlas was done for the first time, I tried to position Israel and Palestine almost on the same page. So every change that have happened in Israel, every development led to a change in Palestine. So it worked like an animation almost. It's like, sort of a spatio-temporal analysis of this landscape over the past hundred years. And it was very important because, for instance, with Atlas One, I received a couple of reviews that became very important to me. One was by the Jerusalem Foundation saying the Palestinian uh, landscape have not been uh, represented in such way since 1948 by no one. We have the last documentation of the Palestinian landscape in this scale has been done in regards to the destroyed Palestinian villages from 1948, but we don't have documentation to what have happened afterwards. So this is historically very important document. Uh, so for me, that was very important to review because I, ha I felt like this have actually an historical value. The second review that I heard that I received was from the Israeli side, from a, a journalist uh, from Aretz newspaper who said, I looked at these maps and I felt like I'm living in them, especially the border, the fluctuation map, that everything is fluid and everything is changing and you live in a reality that is completely uncertain all the time. And these maps make it visualize this very deep feeling of insecurity that we have. So these are two reviews that uh, were very important to me personally. And of course, the reception of such projects, both in Hood and the Atlas, 
I mean, you have two sides. You have the. I remember my mom calling me saying, "Balkit, you should stop because this can be dangerous. I don't want this. Uh, I don't want to read." You know, after a newspaper item, you have all the comments under of people who read it and express their minds. And some of these comments were very violent. So she told me, mm. I think you should stop because this is, I think it's, it's really agitating people what you do. You expose things that people don't want to talk about. Yeah, but I think, you know, that this work of exposing this level of injustice and conflict, it's, uh, it's certainly, uh, it was an essential part of your work and it still is. Um, we were also trying to figure out, uh, you know, this interview is part of a series of a month uh, that is uh, trying to question what can design do to promote peace. And it's interesting because so much of the infrastructure uh, that is, uh, you know, uh, building in Israel is based on conflict and on segregation and it's violent. Do you think, uh, I mean, it's it's really hard to imagine in this specific political moment, but do you think uh, architecture can also become a tool to promote peace and, and to reverse this kind of uh, very aggressive uh, policies? I think it's very hard. <laughs> it's a difficult question, but I want to be, I mean, I always feel like my work has to approach, like I used to approaches or to angles to enter to these situations because they're extremely complex and I want to be pragmatic, critical and pragmatic at the same time. So in the research part, you can be polemic and you can show, you know, the violence and enter to a space that in a way is also, it's also very hermetic because if you see this, you can say atrocity and uh, that is taking place or the violence that is taking place through special design, then it's also paralyzing. Like, what can I do? This is... It needs something more. It needs maybe, I don't know, if you uh, look at critical text or critical architecture discourse, then you don't work with this type of power structure in this type of contexts. For me, I would like to be, again, more pragmatic with it rather than being only critical. I think it's very important, especially if you want to promote peace, which is for me, I, if I try to define for myself what is peace, because it's very hard to define peace, you know. It's um, trying to coexist regardless all the different ideas, ideology, politics, interests, etc. Trying to coexist and share the space that we have because it's limited. Coexist peacefully uh, next to one another and build on that. And I think in that sense, architecture can help at least imagining how these spaces could be. And through that opening ideas and opening, you know, the minds of policymakers. I work with the project that I'm doing now and also in Al Hood, we try to work with the existing policies, trying to find space in existing structures to create place for those that are marginalized to to bring their voices out, express their voices, their agendas, their position within the existing power structures, within the existing regimes. And th this is not easy to do, but it's possible. And I do the same now with policymakers, with the UN. You introduce ideas to them through design, and design can be a very powerful tool because architects can imagine spaces. They consolidate, you know, this abstract idea and turn them into 
a map into a diagram into special configurations show hey that's possible and in, through that you deflate many fears and you can engage in a very productive conversation also with people you, that you think that they might be on the opposite side. I think in that sense, yeah, architecture can play a, a role to negotiate through all these different ideas. Well, I really like what you say about imagination and, and the designer's role in terms of conjuring things and, and proposing alternatives to what is that policymakers and, and others can then react against. and whether we're talking about a militaristic conflict or a conflict over public space or something like that, I think that's what a lot of younger designers that, that we interact with get swept up in. They're, they're part of an economy that says, hey, you know, you, you have to do this or you can't do anything at all. So thank you for providing that example of, you know, how designers can, can put their imagination to work and, and conjure up something that, that hasn't been done before. Yeah, I think it's very important. I mean... If I just uh, read a tweet of Oxfam International yesterday, who said eight billionaires own the same wealth as 38 billion people, and we live in a world that you know it's just it's not just militarization. Uh, we live in a world that has uh, an increasing and obscene inequality inequality in access to resources, growth, housing, and we need to find a way to make space for people to share. And in order to be able to, to counter this inequality, you need to be very, very, very creative. You know, it's not just architecture, it's just you know, all the projects that I've been working on forced me to go out of my comfort zone and constantly negotiate either with other professionals, with other experts, with people who are on the opposing, let's say, team, to negotiate and create a dialogue, a constant dialogue and exchange in order to find these possibilities. So once you find an opening that might allow us even a very small change, you just grab it and go with it. And I think that's, yeah, that's the, for me, it's the only way to go forward is to constantly investigate what are these openings, what are this, these places that can create even a minimal change. And that's why, you know, your work has been so relevant, because it's really about, you know, defining uh, the, the crack in the structure that can really show that uh, it's it's just a basically a, a temporary structure that can be uh, also reformed. So it's really important to see the vanity of all these uh, violent structure that we go on building to perpetuate uh, power structures. Yeah. Malkit, well, thank you very much. I think it was really interesting to, you know, to, to hear, uh, you know, how to expose uh, uh, violence in architecture and, and possibly also how to see, uh, to build in from uh, exposing alternatives. I think it, you also did a work recently that was uh, looking at how the UN peacekeeping mission are actually um, uh, also perpetuating a certain level of militarization and of violence, even while trying to... Uh, to bring peace. I think uh, we won't have time today to talk about this, but it's certainly, uh, I think it's really a relevant work. So I really invite our listeners to go and look at your website and look at the documentation. Thank you. Thank you so much, Malkit. And thank you for the ongoing work that, that you do. We really appreciated having you on the show. And I think 
you know, there's a certain class of designers that are really at the vanguard of, of these sorts of conflicts. And I think you're right. I think design can promote peace if it's done well. Thank you so much. This is all for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We just mentioned Malkit's recent project that is called Blue, Architecture of UN Peacekeeping Missions. In this project, she explores this emerging landscape and takes part in an ongoing conversation across disciplines, with military engineers, diplomats, economists and anthropologists, with the aim of exposing the impact, the issues and the opportunities of this kind of UN missions. You can visit our website, currystonedesignprize.com, to find a direct link to this project and other links, texts and images on the work of the Foundation for the Achievement of Seamless Territory. You will find it in Social Design Circle and under the question, what can design do to promote peace? On this page, you can have a look at our other honorees whose work has been organized by topic. Social Design Insight is brought to you by the Curry Stone Design Prize. If you're not already, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Thank you for listening.